Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. Welcome back to the Our Father series. We're now going to look at the final petition of the Lord's Prayer, the seventh petition. Now, in the last episode, we looked at petition number six, do not bring us to the time of trial, uh, or as it's often popularly translated, do not lead us into temptation. So we dealt with that. What about part two of that sentence? That's really the seventh petition here. Rescue us from the evil one or deliver us from evil. Now, this is really important. We need to understand what is meant by the evil one or from evil. Does this petition of the prayer ask for protection from evil in general or from the evil one? That is Satan. That is the devil. I think that that is probably the case, that it's probably a prayer for uh, a petition for protection from the evil one himself. Why is this? Well, Satan himself is the one who tempts. In Greek, it's ho periazon. And his whole purpose is to attempt to destroy the faith and morality of the people of God. In fact, uh, this is what Catholic Church teaching is all about. We have to adhere to church teaching in two areas, faith and morals. Faith is really what to believe, and morals is really how to live. So, I think what, what's in view here in this prayer is from the evil one in particular, we were to ask for deliverance. Now, again, with the rabbis, we have a parallel in an ancient rabbinic prayer. Listen to this. Uh, one rabbi on concluding his prayer said this, May it be your will, O Lord our God, to deliver us from the destructive accuser. The destructive accuser, not just evil in general, but the destructive accuser. And I think in order to understand more about what this means, we have to turn to Jesus's temptation in the desert. I think that's a, a really big clue as to who the identity of this accuser really is. So if you look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, this is the famous account of the temptation of Jesus. It says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve 
only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Now you have to understand here, uh, Jesus is not tempted by evil so much as these are legitimate possessions of God. The kingdoms of all the world should belong and will belong ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Satan offers is, in a sense, a shortcut to Jesus uh, to achieve the rightful aims of the kingdom. So this is a really important passage, and, and during Lent, it's one that we focus on very particularly, uh, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. As we go through the desert period of Lent, it's something that we can use as well to draw strength from. So in order to set the stage here, we can't forget what just happened in Matthew's Gospel. Just before Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, what happens? It's the baptism of the Lord. And of course, then the heavens are torn open. The Spirit of God descends like a dove, alights on him, and the voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, says, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Well, if God himself, the Father, is saying, This is my Son, this is well known. This is an established fact. So really what's going on here is that the devil's not disputing that at all. That's why his temptation for Jesus is so insidious, and we can learn a lot from this. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. So we need to understand that the fact that Jesus has already been identified here as the Son of God, that's all in the background of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan. There's no challenge here to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, what Satan is trying to do is to get Jesus to abuse his power. And that will render him really ineffective and disqualify him as Israel's Messiah. Think about this. At the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 21, it says that Jesus' mission is to do what? Save his people from their sins. That's the meaning of his name. Uh, the name Jesus in Hebrew is Joshua. It's really the name Joshua, which means God saves. So if Jesus cannot even extract himself from the temptations of the enemy, how in the world is he going to save his people or any of us? So this is a really, really important passage. So Let's take a look at it here. The, the first thing that we have to notice in Jesus' temptation is that it says that Jesus was led up, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, it's really interesting because in Mark's gospel, in Mark's version of this, you know what Mark says? Mark says that Jesus was literally cast out or he was driven out into the wilderness. Now, that's an odd choice of words by Mark because it's the same term that's used for when Jesus casts demons out of people. He casts them out and they have to go. They're, they're driven out. And he uses that same word to have Jesus you know, driven into the wilderness. So uh, that's, that's not exactly too kosher for Matthew. He wants to change that a little bit. So he says, no, 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 he, he was actually led up into the wilderness. So the, the Greek word, by the way, is ekbalo. Uh, in case you're wondering, to drive out. And so 
this is what's what's going on here. And I think also Matthew is thinking about the Old Testament because in every way, Jesus is a representative of the people of God, a representative of Israel. He, he is a new Moses. Uh, he is faithful. And so he's much more than a new Moses, of course. He is the divine son of God. But just as Israel was let out, Israel as a son of God in total as a nation was led out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. Guess what? This is exactly what happens to Jesus himself. And why the wilderness? Why the desert? Have you ever wondered that? Well, in the ancient world, the desert was seen as a haunt of demons, evil spirits. And that's why in Mark's gospel, it says that Jesus was with the wild beasts in the wilderness. That's not just a reference to uh, desert foxes and jackals. No, no, no. In fact, uh, many of the, in the ancient world actually believed that evil spirits took the form of animals like jackals, like poisonous snakes. We, we're all very familiar uh, with Satan as a serpent in, in, the, in works of art. And so... If you look at, uh, there's a Jewish writing uh, that didn't make it into the Bible, but it's a very important Jewish writing. It's called First Enoch. And, and in that book, the angel Raphael, one of the archangels, he, he binds up a demon named Azael and casts him into where? Where does he cast him? Into the desert. Into the desert. And then there's another book called The Testament of Abraham. And again, this is not... Uh, part of the Bible. It's not sacred scripture, but it does shed some light on what people were thinking at the time of Jesus. And so Abraham prays, <laughs> and in answer to his prayer, wild beasts come out of the desert and devour those who are murderers. And that's in the Testament of Abraham. And so this is really important stuff if we're going to understand what the meaning of the desert really is. In, in a book called Four Maccabees, the fourth book of the Maccabees, there is, of course, the righteous Israelite woman who says, No destroyer of the desert injured me, nor did the destructive, deceitful snake make spoil of my chaste virginity. And also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we, we see this theme come up again and again and again. In one of the documents that was found in cave number four, that was really the mother load, the treasure trove of Dead Sea Scrolls that were found uh, in that desert region. Here's what it says. I, the instructor, proclaim his glorious splendor. That's God's glorious splendor. So as to what? Frighten and terrify all the spirits of the destroying angels, demons, Lilith, howlers, and desert dwellers and those which fall upon men without warning to lead them astray from a spirit of understanding and to make their heart, and then the text breaks off, something, something desolate during the present dominion of wickedness. So, so this motif of the demonic uh, being in the desert was well known. And so this idea of Jesus going there, uh, there is no doubt who he's going to come into contact with. Uh, another thing that's, that's interesting as well is that in Jewish interpretation, when Abraham, speaking of Abraham, when he was commanded by God to offer up his only son, Isaac, as a sacrifice, this is really in the background, and of course this happened in Genesis chapter 22, this is really in the background of the temptation of Jesus 
in the wilderness. Think about this. What does God the Father say about Jesus? This is my son, the beloved. Now, who is the beloved son of Abraham? Of course, it was Isaac. And and that was the child of the promise. He was the hope of his progeny. And so, in Jewish interpretation, it was understood that Satan was, in fact, the motivation behind the temptation here. And he was actually called Prince Mastema. That was one of the names for Satan. And it was thought that Prince Mastema urged God to put Abraham to the test. Why? To see if he's really faithful. Would he actually offer up his only son? That's kind of the idea here. Now, in all in all honesty, this was probably very similar to the case of the book of Job. Because if you read the book of Job, what happens at the beginning of Job, Satan kind of makes a bet with God. He says, hey, God says to him, hey, have you considered my servant Job? My servant Job? <laughs> He's a righteous dude. And Satan says, oh, yeah, I bet you I can get him to curse you to your face. Oh, really? You're on. And then, of course, this series of calamities and, and temptations really happen to Job. But he, but he remains faithful. Uh, he does not curse the Lord. And so that was probably in the background of this Jewish interpretation of what happened to Abraham, that, that Satan may have said to God, hey, I want to see if he's really faithful. So why don't you put him to the test? I bet you he will not offer up his only son. And of course, we know that Abraham was, in fact, willing to do just that. Well, speaking of Satan and whether he's known by Prince Mastema or another name, you have to understand that Satan is, in fact, not a personal name. Now, we use that to refer to the devil, the the fallen angel, Lucifer, who became sort of the chief of the fallen angels. And scripture says that he took a third of the angels with him when he rebelled against God. Uh, You can read about this in Revelation chapter 12. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. And the stars of heaven are thought to be, of course, angels. But Satan is not a personal name, nor is the, the devil. The word devil is not either. Devil simply means one who slanders, one who lies, or one who accuses. It's the Greek word diablos, or it might mean one who speaks against. Now, this this idea of accusing, that's very interesting because in the New Testament, the devil is described as the accuser of the brethren. He's kind of like the prosecuting attorney before God, (laughs) trying to accuse us. Look at how unfaithful this person is. That, that sort of thing. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Job. And, and, and Satan, of course, accuses Job of not really being faithful to God. And you can read about that in Job chapter 1. So, so the word devil is not really a personal name, although we use it to, to think about uh, the fallen angel Lucifer, the same as Satan. And this is why, this is why later on in Jesus' career at Caesarea Philippi, when he installs Peter as the first pope, well, right after that, he starts telling them he has to go to the cross. And what does Peter do? He says, no, Lord, this can never happen to you. (laughs) No way. We're not going to let this happen. And then, of course, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He's not saying that Peter is the devil or anything like that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that he's playing the role of 
an accuser of one who speaks against. He's speaking against Jesus. And that's what the word Satan means. The word Satan is actually a Persian word which was loaned into Hebrew, and it means opponent, the opponent. And so at that point, Peter was being an opponent. He was opposing the will of God. He was opposing the salvation that Jesus wanted to bring. He didn't realize that at the time, but that's exactly what was going on. So with respect uh, to the time of Jesus, a lot of different names were applied to the devil. We, we've heard Satan, of course, and you can see that also in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, Job 1, 6, Zechariah 3, 1, Beelzebul. Beelzebul is another name for the devil. Uh, we see this in Matthew 10, 25, Matthew 12, 24. Be liar. Well, that's kind of makes sense because he is a liar, right? <laughs> be liar. That's not really what it means, but uh, you can see that in Second Corinthians six fifteen. Be lial, and we see that in a number of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and also, as I said earlier, Mastema or Prince Mastema. There's a Dead Sea Scroll that talks about the angels of Mastema, the angels that belong to Mastema. In other words, fallen angels or demons. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. All right, so one of the things we see next in the temptation of Jesus in, in verse 2 of Matthew 4 is that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, that's really interesting. Why, why the 40 nights? Now, in Mark's gospel, it only says he was in the wilderness for 40 days. But why does Matthew specifically mention the 40 nights? Well, that's really important because, again, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish hopes for the Messiah. He knows the Old Testament really, really well. If you look at the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 7, guess what? The time of the flood, the great flood, it was 40 days and 40 nights as well. And don't forget, when Moses went to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24, you can also see this in Exodus 34, Guess what? Moses is on Mount Sinai for, you guessed it, 40 days and 40 nights. Also, the prophet Elijah, he's on the run. He's hiding out where? Guess where? In the wilderness. An angel gives him food. Now, it's interesting because, and by the way, you can, you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 19. But it's interesting because if you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness... The temptations, I should say, because there's more than one. It says the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. How are they waiting on him? Maybe they gave him food. <laughs> he was certainly hungry at that point. Now, what, what's important especially about uh, the Elijah experience and also just, just the idea of, of fasting uh, in the Old Testament is that Sometimes prophets had visions after they fasted. Uh, we also see this uh, in a Jewish work called the Apocalypse of Abraham. And by the way, that was around the time of Jesus. It was late first century. So this is the thinking at that time. It says, we went, the two of us alone together, 40 days and nights. And I ate no bread and drank no water because my food was what? My food was to see the angel who was with me, and his discourse with me was my drink. Hmm, how about that? So, of course, uh, Jesus is incredibly hungry after the 40 days, 40 nights of fasting. 
And so this, this brings up the first temptation that Satan is going to give to him in the wilderness. And it also, I, I think Dr. Craig Evans is right when he says that later on in the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. I do think that he was probably thinking about, uh, Matthew's probably thinking about that beatitude when he's narrating uh, this particular temptation, because what Jesus is really hungry for is the will of God. And that's his, what he's thirsty for as well, for righteousness. And so the tempter shows up in verse three. He's none other than Lucifer himself. And so later on in the, um, in the Gospel of Matthew, if you look at Matthew chapter 16, for example, uh, chapter 19, chapter 22, the same word that Matthew uses here for tempting, the same word in Greek, is exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees try to do. Uh, their plans, uh, their diabolically inspired plans to take Jesus out uh, are indeed uh, a temptation. They, they themselves have fallen prey to the tempter. And St. Paul mentions that Satan is a tempter in one of his letters in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. And so what, what does the devil say to Jesus? He says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. So Craig Evans says that there's really different kinds of if-then types of sentences in the original Greek, okay? If this, then that. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. So, so really, the type of if-then situation that's going on here is because if is not really saying that the devil doesn't know that he's God's son. He, he does know this. He absolutely knows it. But what he's trying to say is, because, the if is really more of a because, because you are the Son of God, prove it. Do something about it. Do something about it. If you're really uh, this powerful, because you are this powerful, you need to do something about it. Prove it. And so, that's, that's the great temptation here. It's not that he doesn't really know. He just wants Jesus to disqualify himself. Don't forget, in Psalm chapter, in Psalm 82, uh, verses 6 to 7, it says this, You are God's children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. Now, what does that really mean? We can talk about that another time. But Jesus in John's gospel, in John chapter 10, he applies this to himself. So maybe what the devil is thinking, and Craig Evans suggests this, maybe what the devil is really thinking here, if Psalm 82 says, the sons of the Most High, you are like God's children or sons of the Most High, if they can die like men, like ordinary men, then maybe Jesus too, maybe Jesus as well can be destroyed. And this is what the devil is hoping for. And that's exactly why the devil, later on, he thinks that when Jesus is crucified, he thinks he's won. Ha ha, I've got him. He's dead. Well, the joke's on you. 
And that's the resurrection, right? This is what's known as, in theology, the Christus Victor theory. This idea that God tricked Satan. Uh, He tricked him into the crucifixion of Christ. He thinks he's got him, but God uses this to save us from our sin and from Satan's clutches. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And so that's really what's behind it here. And this is what the devil hopes is going to happen, but he is wrong. And so this is what Jesus does. He recites scripture. And it's really important to note the scriptures that he uh, is in fact quoting are all from the book of Deuteronomy. And so what's the parallel here? Jesus is thinking about the Israelites themselves who were in the wilderness. What were they doing? In Exodus chapter 16, they were grumbling, they were complaining. Why? Because they had no bread. They had no bread. Craig Evans also notes that in a Jewish writing called the Testament of Job, Satan tempts Job through his wife. And how does he do it? Well, he basically pretends that he's a guy who sells bread. How interesting. How interesting. And now Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to turn stones into bread. And so this this, uh, reply of Jesus in verse 4, it is written. Uh, We see this all over the place in Jewish writings. And so eventually... (laughs) People don't even cite, hey, where, where it's written. They just say this all the time. It's all over the scriptures such as Sirach 48.10, Second Chronicles 35.12, uh, all over the place. Nehemiah 8.15. We see it also in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what's he quoting here when Jesus says, it is written? He's quoting part of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. One does not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so again, in Jesus's time, this particular book of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, that was the most quoted book from Moses, from the Pentateuch, from the first five books of the Bible. That was the one that was quoted again and again and again. And the wilderness generation of Moses' time never did learn that lesson, that there is more than simply food for the body. There is more to life than physical life. And they never quite got that. And so this is what the devil tries to do, to try to tempt Jesus into the same error. But Jesus reminds him, humans live not just by physical bread, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so he knows what the rabbis said. Great is the Torah, and that's the five books of Moses, for it gives to them that practice it life in this world and life in the world to come. Yes, physical life is important, but supernatural life is most important of all. That's all the time we have for today, but if you have a question about the Catholic faith, I'll try to answer it on the air. You can send it to me via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com, or you can try to get your question to me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark. I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show live on Relevant Radio, and I'll see you in the next episode of The Faith Explained. God bless.